and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandor of the I, and I think you're interesting. I love animation. Uh, I try and see as much of it as possible. And in recent years, I have really been struck by the films from the distributor G Kids, who picks up some of the best animation from around the world, distributes it to American audiences, but also the Irish studio Cartoon Saloon. There are three films deep now. There's The Secret of Kells, which came out in 2009. There's Song of the Sea, which is a 2014 film. You can watch both of those. Uh, they're usually on some streaming platform or another. And now their newest film is The Breadwinner, which just hit theaters. It's from director Nora Toomey, who is the co-director on Secret of Kells and uh, headed up the story department on Song of the Sea. I've loved all three of their films. All three of their films have been in my, you know, whatever top movies of the year list for those respective years. The Breadwinner is kind of a departure for them, though. It's a story set in Afghanistan at the height of the Taliban. It's a story about a young girl whose father is taken and she has to figure out a way to help keep the family alive. That's the title. And it's about the family dynamics and kind of growing up in this sort of repressive society. It's a really gorgeous, beautifully drawn and designed film. It's something I think that just about any audience member would enjoy. So I wanted to get Nora in here to talk about The Breadwinner with me because I think it's it's a really special film that you're going to enjoy. And she was she was a delight. She she had just flown in from Ireland. That's the kind of thing people do for this show. Now she was here on a PR tour, but she was nice enough to stop by and we had a great time chatting. My guest this week is Nora Toomey. She's directed the terrific new film, The Breadwinner. Nora, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I I want to talk a little bit about the movie in general, but since this is a kind of a movie that I think will be off the radar of some of our listeners, um, tell me a little bit about its genesis, like how this story came to you. Like, what, you adapted a book for this, is my mm. understanding, and like how you decided, okay, this is the this is a book that should be a movie, you know. So The Breadwinner very much kind of landed on my lap, I'd say, as a, as a director. Anthony Leo and Andrew Rosen of Aircraft Pictures, which is a Canadian live-action uh, production company, approached uh, Jerry Sheeran and, and Paul Young of Cartoon Saloon with the, with the book, The Breadwinner, and they asked us if we'd like to get involved with it. They had seen The Secret of Kells and kind of understood the, the type of work that our studio did and uh, thought that we could co-produce together. Right. So we did with um, another partner from Luxembourg, Melusine Productions, run by Stefan Roland. Mm. And yeah, together we made The Breadwinner. They, uh, Anthony and Andrew, uh, gave us the book. And of course, I, I, I read it in an, in an evening and absolutely fell in love with the character of Peruana. And the idea of telling the story through animation was really, really exciting. And I thought, as independent filmmakers, the opportunity to make a film like this was something that we really, really relished, you know. So we, we went mm. forward. It's not a story that needs to be animated, you know. Like, you could do the live-action version of this, as opposed to something like um, the last film Cartoon Saloon made, Song of the Sea, is very obviously this is an animated, you know, this is a story that needs to be done in animation. What grabbed you about this story as, yeah, we should try this in, in animation? Animation allows you to empathize with characters in a very unique way, I think, that live action can't. Mm. Um, there is something about drawing a face and expressing a face with a few lines, I think, which makes a character universal and makes a character easy for an individual to identify with. 
So for me, that's a very exciting space, you know, as a right. filmmaker to to enter into that space. So for me, that's that's the most interesting thing. So there had been a live action film about Bacha Posh, the girls dressed as boys in Afghanistan called Osama, which was uh, released in 2002, I 2003. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, similar subject matter, but there is something about, yeah, animation, I think that 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 allowed us to layer the story as well in a way in which our audiences, I think, didn't emotionally disengage from our characters, which right. might have been the case with live action, you know, or certainly would have been a different set of problems, I think, with live action. So um, there's also an opportunity with animation to express things. I think there's something, you know, you take a picture of somebody, it says one thing, you you draw a picture of that same person in the same set of circumstances and it says something completely different and it's it's difficult to express but it's easy to experience and uh so that's that's why right right it's um you were mentioning kind of finding the funding for this movie and like movies like this i'm always you see the many many like companies at the start of like what is that process like going out there and and this is true of a lot of movies now like a lot of movies have to go out and find like 16 different companies from around the world so yeah yeah and you know it has an effect too because when you when you fund a film like this from different sources, mm-hmm. you also have to be aware that you, your first funder might come on on day one and then expect the film to be finished two years later. Your last funder might come in, you know, much later and then, then you still have to respect what the first funder's wishes, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. You're also, with a film like this, relying on Cartoon Saloon, Melusine, um, Aircraft Pictures, a Guru who worked on the film, all of these studios so funding a film like this, yeah, it's, it's it's quite difficult in one sense, but in another sense, you have a tremendous freedom when you get a, a film that's funded through many sources. So we have the Irish Film Board, Telefilm in, in Canada and the, the Film Fund in Luxembourg uh, all coming together with, and um, we used uh, tax breaks. Mimi Paul Gitlin, who's a producer who uh, produced Helen and Louise, came on board. So again, when you have lots of little funders, in one sense as a filmmaker, you have a tremendous freedom because you don't have a, it's very hard to get a consensus besides everybody wanting to get in behind the the storytellers, the directors and the screenwriters, uh, which was very much the case with this film. So, so yeah, it is difficult and certainly producers on independent films are in their crust for sure, you know, and certainly with animated films as well and ones where you have to respect the, the schedule. Um, that the different studios have in place. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's possible. And certainly this is the third film that we've funded like this. So um, yeah, it's very possible. Now, when you look at the poster for this movie, the big name above the title is Angelina Jolie, who mm-hmm. is a producer on the film. And like, uh, that's pretty unusual. Like, I guess I guess it happens with like Steven Spielberg. Like he produces a film and we say it's, you know, from producer Steven Spielberg. What was your relationship like there? Like, how did that sort of come to be? How did that become part of the, the film? Two of our other executive producers, um, Jahan Mujem and Karim Amir, who produced a documentary a couple of years ago called The Square, which was about oh, the yeah. uprising mm-hmm. in, in Egypt. They um, had a working relationship with Angelina and managed to get the, the screenplay in front of her and some of the early artwork that we had done on the project. Mm-hmm. So they managed to, yeah, she she read that, read the, the screenplay and looked at, at, at her images and very much uh, liked the project. So I came and visited her. 
Yeah, so so from there, I think she looked at pretty much every animatic that we exported. Oh, wow. So, yeah. so this, you know, the rough storyboard pass was we got rough animation as we were casting all of this, um, and she would input on each of those stages. And then when our crew had, you know, when we hit a milestone and we had a party, she would, you know, record a message for our crew <laughs> and for our cast as well, which was, um, you know, meant a lot to, uh, for for our cast. And her crew as well. So, I, so all the way along, she's she's been involved with this film uh, right. very patiently, you right. know, because animation takes so long, you know. Um, yeah, so she's been a huge supporter of the film. What's the what's the process like when Cartoon Saloon when you folks make a film? Uh, is it primarily computer now, or is there is there a lot of hand drawn element yeah. to it? We had a baptism of fire, I think, with the Secret of Kells, which yeah. was on paper, and mm-hmm. we we had a studio working in Brazil. We had a studio in Hungary. We had a studio in France. We had a studio in Belgium. So when when uh, we finished preparing a scene, we we shipped the literal the actual folder away, and that was the last you saw of it, really. You know, <laughs> so um, and until after the production was finished and everything got shipped back so if you could survive that I think you can survive anything <laughs> yeah so when things became digital so now we use uh, we do use computers we, we we draw straight onto our screens we use our screens like paper so it's still drawn animation but it's just instead of paper we have a you know screens and you're you're you know you're working that way but there's a tremendous freedom with that it means that you know if I'm working with an animator that I might you know I might have only met a few times in Luxembourg and we mightn't share a first language even I can take down their scene I can draw on top of their drawings I can write little notes on them I can put it back up online they can take the scene down and you know so you, you're literally communicating with your hands you know which is really really incredible right. so that's that's been brilliant you know I, I actually I wrote a review not of of another film from the distributor G Kids who's handling Breadwinner and I called it hand drawn and somebody was like well it was all done in a computer and like that mm-hmm. that line that we think of between like I guess in the United States you'd think of classic Disney versus like Pixar would be the two poles but that's rapidly blurring together what what is it about working with the computer like you said that offers a lot of freedom like what are things you can do there that would be really hard to do if you were drawing everything hmm um. I, I, there are certain things like, especially with characters that have as few lines as, say, on the breadwinner, the, you know, the faces where you have a character walking towards the screen. Uh, when you're drawing that by hand, that can be extremely difficult when you've got your character scaling up as they come towards the screen. When you're doing it digitally, it can be uh, a lot easier, basically, because you can you can copy and paste parts of your uh, your, your drawing, which was called shift and trace back in the day when, mm-hmm. when we'd, we'd be doing it in paper. Um, so it's, it's similar enough, but yeah, you, I, I think what's what's great as well is that artists can you can copy and paste drawings from scenes from one artist to another. I mean, for me, it's all in the service of a story and all in the service of, of characters. So the more the lines of communication are open mm-hmm. between animators, the better the performance of the character will be. So for an animator to be able to take another artist's drawing and and make that the basis of their scene, so that we get a continuity of performance uh, oh, wow, across yeah. the whole the whole film. I mean, that for me, that's that's amazing, you know. So that's what's possible with uh, digital animation, I guess, or mm. hand drawn digital animation. Um, to me, uh, you know, the, the the fact that it's on a screen is is the same as you know, saying different types of paper, you know, because yeah. they, again, you are creating every drawing uh, fresh, you know. Yeah. So I mean, that, that that's incredible. I think also that that uh, when you're uh, animating digitally, you have the the voice performance there. You can scrub back and forth. So again, it allows for a nuance in the in the animation performance that is very much uh, based on the on the actor's performance you know right, right. which is fantastic tell me about casting this film because uh you had to find actors from that region uh who 
I, it's not a spoiler to say it's set in Afghanistan. <laughs> like that's not a spoiler at all. Uh, but you had to find actors from that region and like there aren't big names in there. There aren't even like medium big names. It all seems like people who are kind of either new to um, English language audiences or new entirely in the case of some of the kids, I'm sure. Tell me about like assembling that cast. Yeah, well, actually, uh, uh, Sarah Chaudhry, who plays the the part of right, Rowan, right, right, is, right, is, yeah. Yeah, is 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 quite an experienced actor. As are yeah, a lot of the younger actors. One of the first conversations with Angelina was about the cast, and she very mm-hmm. much kind of guided us to try and find as many Afghan actors as we could. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, initially explaining, well, this is a co-production; we have to raise the money, or we have to spend the money where we raise the money. So I can't cast the film in, in Kabul, and even if I could, I don't know if I would, mm-hmm. because uh, again, asking actors, especially young actors, to um, you know, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position, sure, you know. Yeah. But we managed to find Afghan actors in Toronto mm. um, you know it's such a multicultural city uh, and where we couldn't find Afghan actors we, we found people with a story to tell you know whose parents had come from one place and you know landed in another place or just to, to, to get some kind of uh, depth and sophistication to our, to our cast to just add some story to, 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 the, to the film so some of our Afghan actors Kawada who plays the part of Razak uh, in the film uh, was a dialect coach as well he mm-hmm. m- made sure that everybody's accent was in the same kind of sphere and yeah so that, that was our, our, our casting process and honestly it was it was it was a joy for the the second tier of of characters, so our marketplace uh, uh, characters, and that we got uh, entire families to come in. So it was really interesting because you had, you know, uh, one family member would explain to another, who, you know, maybe a father explained to a son um, what what the marketplace in Kabul was like, and you know they would give us uh, voice performances for that, which really enriched the whole project because again, in in little throwaway things that they say, so they come in and they give us their voices for the marketplace, but then in little things that they say. You know, we were able to to bring that back and make sure that they got kind of respected within the animation, uh, you know, as well, in terms of Afghan people talking about how Afghan people walk, you know, uh, um, old men walking with their hands behind their back. Um, uh, all of these little things, I guess, went into the performances in the film. Right, right. You know, with voice acting, so often you could cast anybody who has the right voice. What was brought to this by having people who had that experience or had some connection to this story? I think as a director, it it meant that when we went into that little dark booth, you know, and I was asking for, you know, people to trust me and use your imagination and to um, really, you know, open their hearts in front of a microphone. They did that, you know, and did that absolutely open heartedly and and gave a, a level of performance. Uh, where I was in tears, I have to say, half the time, you know, in, in, uh, uh, standing in, in the room with them, you know, as, as they were recording their, their parts. So when you get that level of professionalism on one, on one hand, but absolute full-hearted love of what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, on, a, on another hand, um, that was incredibly special. So uh, I'm always aware as an animation director that what you get in, in those recording sessions, and again, the recording sessions take maybe two weeks, mm-hmm. and then I have to take it back to maybe, you know, 50, 60 animators and ask them to spend a year on those performances, you know, where they, you know, the animators be, become familiar with every breath that the, that the actors take, uh, the pauses in their sentences, you know, and then they find ways to express that, you know, with their, with their, with their drawings. 
Uh, so you have to make sure you get all of that with the with that voice performance. So so having a cast like that, you know, one of the, one of the actors said he was so used to being credited as as um, you know. Uh, terrorist number two oh, or yeah. whatever you know <laughs> so um to to be part of a film like the breadwinner was uh, was something completely different you know the holidays are coming up we all know what that means parties presents ugly sweaters the art of shaving can't help with the ugly sweaters but they can help you impress everyone on your holiday gift list this year take gifting to the nines with the 12 shaving creams and more of Christmas. Think about like if you draw somebody in Secret Santa at the office, you know, and you're not quite sure what to get them. Well, from spicy and citrusy to warm and woodsy, the art of shaving sophisticated fragrances are well suited for anyone that you might know at work. How about like a friend with like a really great beard? We've all got like a friend whose beard is majestic. For your bearded brethren, the art of shaving has stubble balm, beard oil, beard balm, and styling waxes. Friends don't let friends' beards get out of control. But like, who else could you get this for? You Maybe your favorite uncle, an older brother, maybe your younger brother. Maybe you want to like introduce him to manhood by upgrading his shaving routine. You could get something for your dad or, you know, you could just get something for yourself. Sign up for the Art of Shaving's convenient replenishment service, which is the gift that keeps giving all year long. So get a head start on the holidays now. Listeners get 15% off your first order and free shipping when you use my promo code TODD, T-O-D-D. To get the offer, visit theartofshaving.com. Use my special promo code TODD, T-O-D-D, to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Or you can find a retail location near you for a consultation from the Art of Shaving's own Master Barbers. The Art of Shaving this holiday season. And actually, let me recommend, if you know Santa Claus, like, get him the Art of Shaving, too. Because that beard is a good beard. And, like, he could probably use he could probably use some beard maintenance products. So that's my recommendation to all of you people looking for what you can get for Santa. Finding kids who don't sound too a uh, child actor, for lack of a better way to put it, is always a challenge. How did you like fill those roles with people who weren't going to be like, hey, mom, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah. And this was, the, I, I think this is something that we needed to, to define for this film, not just with the with the voice performances, with, but with the animation as well. We, yeah. we, I mean, I was trained in the classical way of animating, which is quite, you know, you, you cushion into a beautiful pose and, you, you know, it's, it's more like the theatre dancing than, than it is um, naturalistic performances. But for this film, of course, we needed very naturalistic performances in order to feel the vulnerability of our characters and mm-hmm. to say things in the pauses between what, you know, characters say or, or the pauses between uh, emotion, you know. We, so it, it was certainly much about defining the type of animation, the type of um, performances that we needed our characters to make, whether it was through voice or through the animation. And uh, with with our actors, like Sarah Chaudhry, is, she was 11 when she she played the part of Parana and she's such an incredible actor. It was about the, the energy that the character was uh, putting forward and again we were you know aware that that the character of Parvana somebody who would work maybe 16 hours a day mightn't have enough nutrition for that day and how to pull down Sarah's uh, the, the energy in Sarah's um, performance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in one sense but then let her kind of spirit come up through that tiredness you know so for me as a director I would always um, stand in the room with, with, with Sarah and ask her I, I guess just express 
things that might have happened to to Parvana that day and and just try and uh, pull down the energy I guess for for Sarah but but again Sarah is so incredibly trusting and so incredibly um uh, sophisticated and intelligent I think in the, in the way that she approaches her her work that um that she was able to do that then and then the same with Soma Chaya who plays uh, Shauzia they worked so beautifully on this film I was very aware of the the women's voices in this film as well we have the three ages of the you know the the, the mother and the two daughters uh, in the film and I was aware of the chemistry between those three voices and the rhythm and the the, the quality of their their vocals not not just the performances themselves because they spend a lot of time in that one room um, so to tell the story, I guess, with the quality of their voices and, and the different experiences that each of those three women, you know, or three uh, females would have had uh, was was quite important. And I really love yeah, the way that Lara and Sarah and and uh, and Shaista, who, who plays uh, the, the part of uh, Soraya, you know, how their voices blend together is very beautiful. Were you able to record with the actors in the same space at the same time, I assume not. Most animated films don't. No, and I, I, I honestly don't like to do that anyway mm-hmm. because um, I'm, I'm a very much a control freak, I think, <laughs> when it comes to uh, that element. You know, yeah. uh, certainly everything to do with the animatic and the voice performances, I, I try to kind of control as much as I can um, in one sense. The more familiar you are with your film at that point, the more you understand the freedom that you can allow your your uh, your actors as well, I guess. When we go down the line and it's, you know, uh, compositing or, or um, score and all that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm not quite hands off, but I'm, you know, there, there's more freedom there. But I think for the actors, uh, I, yeah, I do them separately. Um, I, I do feel that um, I like to voice edit as well. So I like to place characters, you know, voices on top of each other, especially with arguments, something that you can never really get if you have, a, you know, a, an ensemble um, yeah. recording session. Um, people just instinctively are polite, you know, so it's, it's very hard <laughs> to move beyond that. But then if you try to change the rhythm of that, you can't, you, you can still hear uh, the remnants of somebody else's performance in the earphones and that if you try to pull them apart. So, um yeah, so for me, um, one at a time is is is, is definitely uh, you know something that that worked really really well for the breadwinner because again, I I would um, stand in the space with the actor and sometimes I would read opposite them or sometimes I would suggest just suggest how they're feeling you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the other side of like animated performance, which is the actual drawings. Mm. And yes, you've mentioned several times these are not like minimalist drawings, but they're definitely, there's definitely less detail there than would be in like a real human face. Yeah. How do you get a performance out of something that is those simple lines, those, those, those very small shapes? Yeah. And, you know, I think those small shapes are so powerful. You know, I think mm-hmm. that they, they have the, the capacity to kind of express um, much more than, than the, you know, the physical human body. Um, we start out with, um, as a director, and I, I, I would start, I would act out every, seen in in the film as a kind of a, a baseline the least that I expect to kind of you know from from the animators um, I also do it to um, make sure that our characters have a physical arc so Pramana in the film starts out with a very uh, certain type of physicality she's somebody who very much wants to disappear in the space that she's she inhabits or, or to inhabit the least amount of space she doesn't make a lot of direct eye contact uh, yet you see her thinking you see her thought process quite a bit um, and then her her physical performance goes someplace quite different you know mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to make sure that there is an arc to that and again across two studios animating you know kind of thing to, to make sure that arc is there so for me to make the least amount of mistakes, basically what I you know do is I, I will act everything out, then I will voice over um, 
that kind of rough uh, performance and say what I like about it or what 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 the what the essence of the scene is, I guess. And so our animators um, take that and then they will either act out again themselves or uh, or they might use some poses or um, they, we don't rotoscope. So I wouldn't we, we don't draw on top of, uh, you know, a, a live action performance. Um, but it's just it's just to to figure out what happens in every scene and, and to find what character leads it at, at, at uh, different points and all of this. So there's a, there's a moment in the film where a character receives some bad news and it's very internal, um, his response to that. Yeah, I, yeah, um, I know that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I remember working with uh, with our animation director, Fabian Erlinghauser, how, what we were going to do uh, with that. I and mean, again, we just, you know, we, we just sat around for, for a while trying to figure out what to do with that moment. And it, it literally came down to, yeah, Fabian, you know, the... Uh, went through the motions of what the character would do and it it's just all in a pause you know in a pause yeah. when you know when you when he's just about to 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 get up you know the, the steadying of that moment i guess and the steadying of his head and you know um the, the the idea of the whole world kind of swimming around you so again with 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 small little gestures and the lack of little gestures i guess at at some points when you ask your own body you know kind of what what you would do in those situations and you act out you know these these uh, these scenes it gives you a lot and it, it certainly helps you communicate to animators then or to start a dialogue with animators as to you know what the, what the best way to approach every scene is and again for me it's all about making sure that the performances are consistent you know from the beginning of the film all the way through because it's not necessarily something that audiences can put their finger on mm-hmm. but if something is missing or if something doesn't make sense or a physical sense or emotional sense it just distances them from from the screen I guess and so we're always aware of that so as much truth uh, that we can ask of ourselves to put on the screen um, the more the audiences will connect with what's on the screen. So you kind of have to be an actor yourself in some ways, like you have to be paying attention to like human behavior and yeah. health. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I mean, it's different. You know, different directors have different, um, you know, interests and strengths. I guess, or, 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 you know, how how the teams. I mean, every every animation team is quite different. You know, right. and 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 the roles within every production is quite different. It all depends on the makeup of the skills and talents of of the team that come together. So for me, yeah, I mean, acting would be a part of it. Um, uh, yeah, very much so. I suppose, in in some senses, I don't think I'm a very visual uh, storyteller. I think I'm more, more emotional, you know, mm-hmm. storyteller than 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 visual. I guess. So um, yeah, so acting is, is is quite big. Right, right. You mentioned earlier that you you don't do rotoscoping. Do you just like? Do you not like it? Do you think you, it gives a quality to it that doesn't work, or is it just like not something you've you've wanted to do yet? Um, I. I, I don't think I'd ever want to do it, I think, mm-hmm. because I think uh, animators are actors, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, and, and they have a, they have a way of expressing things for us, uh, for shooting live action for, for, for this film. Uh, as reference, it was purely that it was it was it was to ask our like I said to ask our bodies questions, you know, uh, um, and to try and figure out all the, these little things that that um, that make us human, I guess. Yeah. So it was it was a way of answering questions, I guess, or or, or posing questions. But uh, to rotoscope, for me, it's not it's not terribly interesting. I think you know then use an actor and you know shoot, yeah. shoot live action you know kind of thing don't um, you know I, I certainly know as an animator somebody who would have animated it's really boring rotoscoping it's really <laughs> boring because you're not you're not using your head that much you know and then thinking about the physics or, or, or acting or you know motion um, it's it's more about just you know 
follow the line. Right, right. Um, you have a baby in this movie, and you—I assume you had to direct a baby. I always like—I <laughs> always wonder, like, how do you get what you need from somebody who literally can't read a script or follow direction or anything like that? Gosh, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, we we have. Um, we have Zaki in, in in the in the film, and it's three uh, children actually make oh. up the performance of of Zaki. So one is my son, who was five at the time. Mm. So for anything that needed um, words, um, Patrick uh, did the performance for. So there, there's a there's a part where Barana uh, is about to tell her her first story uh, in the in the in the film, and and Zaki is is crying. We, we needed very specific uh, performance. Now we're very lucky that Patrick has quite a squeaky voice at five, so he, he could he could still. <laughs> Mimic a, a toddler. Um, so uh, then we used Fabian's uh, Fabian's little girl Lily as well, who um, I think at one point wanted a piece of of chocolate or something. that was uh, uh, having landed on the floor, and she had a full blown tantrum. So we <laughs> recorded her tantrum, and then we recorded another little boy called Finn as well. And then I I spliced them all together, and I remember showing it to 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 Fabian. You know, said you know, put his headphones on. Said, "What do you think of this?" And he said, "That's terrible. You can't do that because he could hear his own daughter." You know. <laughs> And, under, and then could hear when it was it ceased to be his own daughter and started to be another child. So to him, it was it was pretty horrific to listen to these performances spliced together. But um, when I, I uh, asked the sound engineer, "What do you think of this?" You know, uh, the child's performance. He was like, "Yeah, okay, okay." <laughs> so it's funny when you see behind the curtain; it's very hard to unsee because, again, I can hear my own son very right. clearly in this film, and can hear the differences between him and and the other two uh, children. But um, I mean, yeah, I mean, so so like Fabian's uh, daughter at one point sings. Um, so again, we just recorded lots of babble, lots of tantrums, lots of you know, in, in terms of the, the the toddler stuff, and then um, got it to yeah, just found the bits that that suited uh, in fact yeah it, at some points it sounds like the uh, like Zaki is calling is saying his own name quite a bit but actually it's Fabian's uh, little girl is is is, is um, half German so she's yeah it's funny what you can do <laughs> that's great I think you're interesting is brought to you by freshly freshly delivers fully cooked prepared meals straight to your door. No more coming home and wondering what's for dinner because freshly's team of chefs and nutritionists are here to save the day. You get to skip the shopping. You get to skip the chopping. You get to skip the cleanup. All you have to do is heat it up and boom, your meal's ready to eat in just three minutes to try freshly out. Go to freshly.com slash interesting to get $20 off your first week. That's six meals for just $39 plus free shipping. This offer is only valid for a limited time. So go to freshly.com slash interesting for $20 off and free shipping. Consider dinner done. Storytelling is so important. You you worked uh, you were co-director of Secret of Kells. You uh, worked in the story department for Song of the Sea, and now you, this film. And storytelling is so important to all of those films in very different ways. But like it's it's a recurring theme throughout both your work and then the work of the studio itself. What is like interesting to you about storytelling and, and that thread? Well, I guess I am a storyteller. So for me, I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it seems like it's 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 the most interesting thing. I, I think the the idea that stories can heal as well as is a, is is a huge idea that I'm I'm very interested in. I think certainly with uh, films um, that have a, a, a subject matter like Afghanistan and you know the the years and decades of conflict that have uh, taken place in Afghanistan. 
the role of story and the role of voice and the, I think that there is a certain amount of healing involved to be even able to articulate something that has happened. I think, you know, when, you, when you're at that place, you're already in a very hopeful place where you can express something that has happened to yourself or to other people. So, I mean, the the, the role of story in, in how it evokes empathy in others, I think, as well, and understanding. I mean, for for me, these are all amazing um tools as a, as, a, as a storyteller when I think of the the potential that film has to reach uh, younger audiences at a time where they're impressionable and that you know we could you know a, a, a film like The Breadwinner might might help younger people to ask questions I guess I mean for me that that's all it's incredible or the idea of it is incredible I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, my my dad was a storyteller, you know. Yeah. yeah. So so again, I I just I I love the idea of it. And that comes through here because the film, one of the earliest things you see is the protagonist's father telling her this story of the people uh, of Afghanistan. And um, I I thought this movie was interesting in the way that it talks about how we use myth and legend to sort of talk about these shared traumas, these generational traumas that get visited upon us. And I'm wondering, like, if if you had that thought, because it circles back at the end in a really interesting way that I won't spoil, but you should see the movie because it, it works really well. Yeah, I think I think as well with, the, with this film, the idea of um, any kind of a regime trying to divorce you from your history and the divorcing you from your stories, you know, or trying to separate you from who you are, you know, as, as a people mm. um, was, was something that was hard to, to comprehend, I guess. Um, the, the sense, I mean, the regime at the time would have not allowed, uh, you know, cameras, you know, mm-hmm. because, uh, again, the, you know, the recording of what was going on wasn't, wasn't, um, wasn't permitted. And I think, yeah, I think when you're in deep, deep trouble, I think when when you forget who you are or where you came from, you know, because it, it doesn't, you, you can't see where you're going, I guess, if you don't know where you, you, you came from. So our history um, as, you know, uh, not just in Afghanistan, but, you know, all around the world, I think, yeah, that's hugely important. So to, to be able to express that through through story is is and was for this film extremely important. Um, I, I, I guess as well, I mean, the more powerful stories are never told in, in a very direct way. I mean, the more roundabout a way, you know, you, you tell a story, the more the more you can apply it to it as well, I think. So um, Parana begins to tell a story at one point and it, and it begins to, to mean something for her and it becomes a, a, a healing tool, I guess, for her, you know, as is the case. I don't know. I mean, like I, I have two young kids myself. Um, they every night would ask me, for um, two stories, one one from a book and one from my head, you know. Mm-hmm. So every night I'd have to make up a story from from my head, but I would always try to work in something from their day, you know. And mm-hmm. they would never quite get that I was working in you know, <laughs> something that that they'd already told me. And they say, "Oh my God, that's just like me," you know. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, so you you. It's, it's your own little petri dish. Like if you have kids, you can, you can kind of figure out um, our own our own innate love for story. I guess comes from you know our, our ways of trying to process what's going on around us. You know, what was your research process like for this? Because it takes place in a very specific culture, but also at a very specific time. It's it's uh, sort of 
it's sort of on the cusp of a major event in Afghanistan mm. history, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I guess I was quite aware uh, making this film that Deborah Ellis had uh, written the book in the, the late 90s. Mm. Uh, the book was first published in, in the year 2000 and everything that had happened in the meantime, I guess, w- was important to me in terms of uh telling the story in a way that wasn't overly simplistic. You know, I wanted to tell a story that that nodded to everything that had happened in the meantime in the last, um, you know, 17 years now. Because I think the way that we view the world has changed quite a bit since 9-11 and since the fall of the Taliban regime, since, you know, NATO entered Afghanistan and, uh, you know, on and on, you know, the the, 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 the rise of ISIS, etc., um, ha- has all informed the world that we are existing in right now I guess so so for me that was that was quite important so from the very earliest times when we first said yes to this project we uh, involved Afghan people so that one of the first people who came on board with the project was Amanullah Mojadidi who um, helped with the screenplay and I guess he because he's Afghan American uh, had a a foot in 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 both places and and could see things from a very particular uh, perspective. I think that was both and neither one nor the other. I guess um, so. He um, helped quite a bit. Anita Doran, who's a screenwriter, also is somebody who didn't grow up in one place in particular. You know, she she uh, uh, grew up in in the Ukraine and and Hungary and. Uh, was living in Canada at the time that she wrote the screenplay and now lives in France. So I, I think she's a very nomadic spirit, I guess, and, and doesn't see things from one particular perspective, um, which was quite important. Um, uh, we worked with the Afghan Women's Organization, who, again, looked at all our animatics, basically, you know, kind of thing, and, and, and all the way through um, helped us uh, define what this film should be, I guess. I mean... Honestly, the research nearly paralyzed me at a certain point because, again, I, I realized that even, you know, where the Taliban came from, you know, and, and how they were supported by the West, you know, at a, a, an early stage, which gave them, a, a you know, a false strength, I guess, in, in the country um, was was also something that led to that the point that we, we that we described with this film. So it was it was it was so complex. Yeah. And so multifaceted that that I did, you know, it did almost paralyze me. But I I went back to family. Then at that point, I said, okay, there there is all of this, and I certainly this needs to inform the way that we tell the story. But there there's also the universal elements, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the the you know the, the the idea of Pravana's love for her father, her relationship to her big sister, you know, to little little Zaki running around, you know, kind of thing. Um, all of these things are. Universal beats, I guess, and 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 for me, I suppose the most interesting points in the film are the ones that we can all, we all share. You know, um, um, uh, sharing a meal, um, sitting and watching the world go by. You know, uh, you know, sharing your dreams with your best friend. They're the they're the the, the moments in the film that I think that are most universal. I guess. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the relationships between the the family members are so well delineated and like i i'm i'm thinking about uh were there was there like a particular relationship that you struggled with or had to kind of find your way into or did did those relationships fall into your head well yeah in in the book they were pretty well defined i think so i i I pretty much knew where we were going with with those but what what i did struggle with quite a bit was parwana i think because because she is specifically afghan because 
she has less of a sense of an individual and more a sense of family duty, I guess, and, and her place within her family. You know, I mean, these were things I struggled with quite a bit because, again, when we were looking at, you know, how to structure this film and, and to, to give it, uh, you know, a, a pacing whereby which our, our, our audience would be at the edge of their seat, hopefully, you know, kind of thing that we wanted to give it a fairly, um, you know, standard uh, kind of a, a three-act structure. But at the same time, there, so, there was so much uh, that was internal with Piranha. So how do you express that on the, on the screen, I guess? Um, so again, I suppose it, it all circled back around to her performance and making sure that the, the animation was so subtle and that the voice performance was so rich that it allowed us to do that without adding a, a kind of a narration or a voiceover because that's something that, that's in Deborah's book. You have a, you can hear Piranha's internal voice and it gives us so much. Um, yet we couldn't do this with the, with, with the film or I didn't want to do that because it, it would have put um, an order on the chaos, I guess, and I needed I needed us to feel the chaos, you know. Yeah. And, and um, uh, so for me as a director and certainly I think with the, the animation crew, the more that we empathised with our characters and all the characters, I think, the easier it was then, you know, I mean, to, to put your, yourself into the shoes of every character that you animate or that you would try to understand or that you direct, you know, as a, as a, as a director or the, the, you know, that you're, you're, when you're communicating to your voice cast, you have to feel empathy for them. And that's all of them, you know, I mean, even the ones that are doing things that you don't agree with, you know, you have to try and understand where they're coming from, you know. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask a little bit about the role of, of women within the society the story depicts because there's no like easy moral lesson at the end. Like you don't have anybody stand up and say, this isn't good, but like it, it comes across in a way that's not patronizing, I guess would be the word I'd use. Like, how did you approach that problem? Well, it's because it's not a simple, it's not a simple problem, you know, and, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a symptom of a society where, you know, and it certainly happens uh, a lot with, with conflict, you know, women and children are, will, will be the ones who will be quite visibly suffering, you know, men are usually gotten rid of or are or, or in positions of power, you know, um, but it's the women and children, I guess, that, that, that you, you see suffering. So I, again, I mean, I'm aware that Afghanistan, I mean, Afghanistan in the 1960s had, you know, you see these pictures of, of you know, women in Kabul and, you know, in universities, there were more women in, in universities in Kabul, I think, at the time than there were in certain states here in, mm. in the United States, you know. Um, so again, you you have a, you know, a society that went through um, many decades of conflict and again, a lot of proxy wars, you know, by superpowers, you know, um, so I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to point a finger because I'm aware, you know, I come from Ireland where the the church had a, a stranglehold on the on the, the the country for for decades after our own independence, and we went through our own civil war. Um, and again, you had uh, women being put into institutions when they, you know, if they had children out of wedlock, and you you had you know things like arranged marriages. Um, where women were, were, were seen as, you know, uh, uh, property as opposed to uh, people in their own right. Um, so I'm not that many generations away from yeah. that kind of thinking, you know, in, in my own country. So it's not that hard to understand how it can happen and how it can happen really easily, you know. But, it, you know, by the same measure, it's 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 not that difficult for it to come round again, you know, and, and for as as uh, society becomes more healthy or becomes more peaceful i guess it's uh, it, it it can you know and as is the case in afghanistan right now you know the, there are uh, um you know uh, many more young girls and and women in education than than there would have been um at the time that the film depicts you know yeah yeah this is really a the the 
the morality and philosophy of the film and also the story itself is like there's a lot of elements. You have like 90 minutes. I think it's just mm-hmm. a little over 90 minutes long. And it's like it's a film that's appropriate for children to watch. Kids can go in and see it. How do you fit that much complexity into that space in a way that can be digested by, you know, nine, ten-year-olds? Yeah, I mean, we, we wanted to go for certainly the same kind of age group that the book is, is um, mm-hmm. you know, is aimed towards. So, yeah, nine, ten and upwards, I guess. And and for adults certainly as well. Um, I, I I a great piece of advice I got, and it was Eric Beckman actually of G Kids. I remember early on in 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 the, in the process said never, don't be afraid to you know um, make a film that might be that that parts of it might go over children's heads, mm. but don't talk down to adults because adults won't forgive you if you if you talk down to them. And I think that's that's extremely true. So. We 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 did a lot of animatic work and we did we did many different versions and we we certainly tested with uh, younger audiences and that but we but I, I it was certainly a case where we did never try to talk down to children even because again Deborah Ellis's um, novels never never talk down to children either they they explain things in quite a matter of fact very empathetic way but but very matter of fact you know. So at, at the end of the day, you make a film for yourself. You know, as a director, you you you, you imagine that you're you know sitting in the in the, the middle of a whatever your your favorite theater, and 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 that's what you you try to experience every time you watch a film, watch your film, and watch you know every scene that that's uh, that's going through the animation process. So um, yeah, I mean, again, it it was a, it was a difficult film in terms of just making sure that that people didn't emotionally disconnect from it, and that it never became so intense that it that people emotionally disconnect from it. It's funny talking to to some adults about the film, and they will worry about what children uh, will feel while watching the film. But adults come at it with uh, all of the tension of the last seventeen years, you know, and they 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 go into a film about you know Afghanistan and they expect certain things. So they're they're tense even before you show them a single frame. You know, they're 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 tense already. Whereas children don't have the same associations. They look at Pravana. They look at the way that she deals with things. They watch her face and they they take that as their cue as to how to react. You know, so oftentimes and certainly with the early screenings that we did with um, teachers and and students. Um, the teachers were coming out with red eyes and the students were coming out bouncing and chatting, you know, uh, because, again, they, they were getting two completely different layers of the of the story, you know. So um, so it's it's interesting, you know, how you can have an audience of different ages, you know, experience the same film and have completely different experiences. What uh, That's worked with all the all the films you've worked on. What What's interesting about seeing seeing it through those different eyes, seeing it through kids eyes? Like, what does that tell you about your own films, maybe even? Hmm. That's an interesting one. What does it tell us about our own films? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to ask a child, I guess. Uh, you know, in, in terms of, um, I uh, because again, what different children get out of the film is it can be different as well. You know, so I I don't know. I mean, and it's certainly a film that 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 leaves spaces in it the way the breadwinner does, um, and those spaces are filled with a person's own interpretation and their own expectation I guess uh, so it's it's been it's been interesting with the breadwinner that different people point out different moments in the film as being particularly effective or or something that spoke to them you know uh, personally you know so so that's been interesting um, with children certainly children are will normalize you know anything uh, you know and and everything and and 
they yeah, how they process something I think can be quite you know is different than 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 how adults do you know um, and and they I think children. It's it's a funny thing because sometimes adults are afraid to let children feel fear, you know, mm-hmm. um, and yet children need to express fear. They need to experience fear. That's you know how they learn to deal with the world. You know, um, for them to uh, come across a film like The Breadwinner, which again might um, pose questions that they don't you know get to get to experience or pose every day. I guess um, for them to 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 come across a film like this. Um, is no harm at all, and I think you know films that that um, have um, the capacity to have children talk to adults about things that they wouldn't normally, you know, talk to them about. I think that might, again, I mean, if if, it's, if anything positive is to come from this film, it would be that. I mean, if the film can uh, be, become part of a conversation between um, you know children and 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 adults, I think that's that would be great. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the job. You'll have resumes pouring in, you're not sure who's the right person, and it can be hard to wade through all that information. Some might say all that nonsense. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. And then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. It's no wonder 80% of employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish in one place. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire, and you can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, F-R-E-E free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. I'm sure that finding, because there's so many elements, and like you said, there's a lot of kind of quiet spaces in this film, um, but there's also, you know, warm and loving moments, and then the storytelling, and then there's like five or six different storylines, honestly. I mean, Pashwana's involved in almost all of them, but like they're all sort of competing for space. How did you find the balance, and maybe what's something you kind of had to cut back on to find that balance? I think for... For a while during the story process, the 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 story world wasn't working, um, you know, mm-hmm. and and we had to go back in and do a little bit of rewriting to make sure that it it kind of fit within the 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 universe that we were we were creating and that it, that it it came to the same place, you know, as 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 Parana's uh, experiences in 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 Kabul. Um, you know, to make sure that everything kind of um, reached the climax of the film at the, at the one time, I guess. Um, so that was that. I mean, at different times, uh, you know, different parts of the the story were working and weren't working. What was interesting with this film, I think, is that we 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 storyboarded with 
just one storyboarder for that initial pass of this film because, again, I wanted to make sure that we had one sensibility going through the whole film. Sometimes when you work with um, a storyboard team, you can have, uh, you know, all you can see every storyboarder's personality through mm-hmm. the, the sequences yeah. that they're they're working on. So for me, it was important um, um, to to just get one sensibility go, to go through the whole film. So we did one pass with a storyboard artist called Julian Renard, who's also a, a director um, who made a film called Somewhere Down the Line with us in Cartoon Saloon a couple of years back. Um, so I, I just worked with him initially and then once we had the bones of the film and the sensibility and we, we knew that the kind of emotional thread and Piranha's arc was working well then the rest of the team uh, came on board um, but they came on board on you know in, you know in, in, in drawing layers on top of his drawings as opposed to like you know everybody's uh, starting out with one sequence each or whatever so I mean that was that was quite uh, yeah quite important I guess right. to to get that going right. The uh, your studio now I've gotten to a place where I'm like uh, anything I see I'm sort of like I'm anticipating it because I'm I've liked your films like how do you how do you build a culture This is a huge question to ask with like five minutes left but how do you build a culture that sort of like encourages people to take those risks and to like um, you know share ideas and things like that because I think your films all are just beautiful beautifully created thank you um i uh i don't know (laughs) (laughs) please solve workplace culture problems no you know what i think i think um i mean i love what i do you know i absolutely do i love i love telling stories i love sitting at an edit machine i love working with people who love drawing you know i love uh you know uh, so when you when you find that find your bliss and sometimes it's you know it's not the same for me I spent my first decade uh, you know my first uh, you know professional decade uh, drawing you know and mm-hmm. animating the second one was more um, editing you know so so you move you know you, uh, if, if you're not happy move to a position where you where you can find some kind of happiness I think and certainly you know finding something that you do that doesn't feel like work I think is is, is really important um, and just uh, in terms of taking risks, we ne- we were never comfortable. You see, we, we uh, uh, Tom and Paul and myself, you know, all all of the people that helped us uh, uh, set up Cartoon Saloon, did so kind of out of college. Mm. We didn't know what it was like to earn money, you know. <laughs> and it was you know a long, long time before we we you know we, we were even stable as a, as a, as a company, you know. And and within all of that, I guess what kept us stable was the love of storytelling, you know, and the, the love of, of trying to tell stories in, in a way that's visually appealing, I guess, as well, and with a very strong uh, design sensibility. Um, we, we continue to to want to tell those kind of stories. And, and the more we go on, the more we find partners around the world that also want to tell those stories with us, you know. So we find we find people who... Who, who are like-minded, I guess, um, and that energizes us as well, you know. And we, you know, working together then and 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 making a film like this is is incredible because it means that you want to make you, you want to make more films. Yeah. Um, I, again, I feel privileged coming from a country that that um, has a film board that that uh, can fund, you know, um, uh, partly because you know, and uh, you can never um, raise enough money in Ireland to make an entire film. You always have to work with partners. But I mean, with that comes um, 
you know, you make incredibly wonderful uh, connections. And again, it kind of circles around to the whole digital way of making films in, in which your communication lines can be completely open at all times, you know, and it doesn't matter where people are working from, you can all contribute to one film. And I mean, for me, there is nothing more hopeful than, uh, you know, a bunch of artists and actors and animators and, you know, uh, composers and, uh, you know, uh, coming together to make one project uh, from all different corners. Cool. Well, all of these films. This is this is a very silly question to sort of move toward the ends on, but uh, all of these films have really great animals in them, like really well designed animals. Like this movie has a great horse. <laughs> I, I just love that horse. What's fun about like drawing, designing an animal? Like what's fun about that that maybe you don't get with a human figure? That's funny. That was uh, Reza Riahi, who's uh, one of the art directors that uh, made that horse. <laughs> we were trying to, we were trying to do justice to what Anita had uh, described in her in her screenplay. Uh, what's uh, what's what's yeah? I mean, and, and especially I think with that horse, with the, the the description of a horse whose bones rattled together as, as he walked, you know, uh, was 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 uh, was incredible. I think, and but also I, I know the animator had had great fun. Uh, <laughs> animating that character um yeah it's just you just have more freedom especially for a character like that that's just made you know for his comedic kind of uh, values i mean that was yeah it was just a, a joy to do but i mean again you know you have there's some you know melancholy kind of elements with that horse as well i think you know and uh, certainly we have at least one crew member who signed off with i will see you again old friend <laughs> <laughs> well well every uh, every episode we end by asking some of our guests some of the same questions so i'm going to ask you those questions now uh, our question for this time of year is what is the best gift you've ever received and it has to be like a material thing it has to be like a hat it can't be like oh i love my children like people have tried to to beg off with that so oh my god the best gift i ever received Maybe it's in front of me. <laughs> this is a big hint for my husband. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I can't. I, gosh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when I was when I was about uh, eight years old, and I had to pay for half of it. Mm. But my mother, my mother uh, paid uh, five pound toward uh, this Holly Hobby piano. It was oh, a little, wow. yeah, little. Um, uh, yellow, uh, small little um, toy piano, um, and I'd never. I always wanted to play a piano, and you know, and I, this was one that that we could afford. So I had I had five pounds. It was all my savings, and my mother um, uh, matched it, and and we we got this um, this piano, and I still have it. Oh wow! So yeah, uh, you know, uh, if if you want something that's going to last, maybe pay for half it. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the uh, filmmaker or animator that you have learned the most from that you've never met? It can be somebody who's passed on, if, mm, if you like. Yeah, mm, maybe. Yeah, I would say Lottie Reinecker, who mm. you know um, made an incredible cutout silhouette, you know, films. Yeah. Um, uh, she was an you know an incredible animator, an incredible director, uh, who probably doesn't get as, enough credit, you know, and she deserves. Uh, uh, you know, a huge credit as, you know, uh, the grandmother of animation, really, you know, as far as uh, I'm concerned. And again, somebody who made just, you know, films are all about atmosphere, you know, and and creating, uh, you know, a a feeling and and her films just created such an amazing, magical feeling, I think, you know, with with the way that she she animated and, you know, there's such eloquence to the, you know, the way she cut out their characters and created her 
her frames, you know, they're they're really, really beautiful. So I would say that uh, if I could someday kind of create some kind of a feeling, you know, it, uh, akin to what she did mm. um, with her medium, I would be very happy. Mm. And finally, what is the last like movie you watched or TV show you watched or book you read? Just something pop cultural that you consumed and what did you think of it? Like maybe you watched a movie on the plane over. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I watched uh, Maudie which okay. is this absolutely uh, beautiful film um, about a painter and mm. her husband. Um, uh, and it's a very uh, a quiet film in, in some senses and a, and a film that expresses something uh, uh, of, its, of its time. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, really beautiful film. And I did watch it on the plane, which is a terrible way to watch it. But um, I, I, I was shaking the entire sh- uh, seat with, uh, with, with tears, I have to say. I, I, that's, a, that's a great film. I love that film. So, mm-hmm. yes. Well, Nora Toomey, The Breadwinner is in theaters. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Congratulations. It's the closing credits. You're almost done. You almost made it. I hope your commute's almost over. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, I'm Todd Vanderwerf. I'm the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. Box Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. And we recorded this week's episode at the Village Workspaces Podcasting Studio in Santa Monica, California. Our editor this week was Jarrett Floyd. Our recording engineer is Jay Brooks. If you'd rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or your platform of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps us climb the ranks. It helps people find us. It helps us continue to get great guests. If you want to offer a comment on the podcast, please leave a review. I read all of them. Uh, You can also email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show, itui.podcast, itye.podcast at Vox.com. You can also tweet at me. I'm at TVOTI to Vody. We will be back next week with another figure from the world of arts and entertainment or media and culture. Just somebody who I think is interesting. But until then, remember your face is just a tiny collection of lines and shapes. Bye.